It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. And that, of course, is 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa. And if you listen on the iHeartRadio app, you can take us with you anywhere you go. So it's a pleasure to uh, have you all with us as we get back into a new season of Moment of Truth. And I'd like to welcome to the show Sunny McFadden Curtis, and she's here to talk about a new film that she has out. It is called Broken Vows. We're going to give you a little more information about Broken Vows and how you can uh, get access to that, where you can purchase it, etc. But uh, it's the story of separation that takes you into the lives of women, their personal stories, and the tales of those caught in the crossfire of marriage, breakdown, and separation. It is directed by award-winning director Sonny McFadden-Curtis. And it is also a project from her filmmaker uh, company entitled Bench Boy Productions. Now, Broken Vows shows why separation can be one of the most psychologically exhausting times in a woman's life, and it explains there is often an expectation to make life-altering decisions under extreme duress and evolve rapidly in a world churning with mega-issues. So Broken Vows is about a universal theme, of course, with uh, global appeal, yet uh, providing solace to individuals who need to know they are not alone anymore. And just a little bit more about Sunny. She is a black female director, filmmaker, producer, actor, and above all, a dedicated social advocate. Sunny, I understand that you and your son uh, had the opportunity to go to the White House. Is that correct? We did, exactly. Uh, we were invited to the Senate to partake in a roundtable um, with uh, senators, etc., and those other experts in the field of um, anti-bullying education and uh, invited to speak and partake in these roundtables, as well as meeting with um, Congress people as well. And because there was there is such an issue, uh, which unfortunately continues in, in bullying, that um, it was nice to see that they were taking it seriously and really wanted to have a sit down and try to figure out how we could help this situation and make schools safer for children. Mm. It was yeah. a wonderful experience for my son and I. Congratulations. Thank you. And of course, that it goes on top of uh, another film that you have, right? Bullying, A Culture of Silence? Correct. What can you tell us about that just before we get started on the new film? Well, actually, that's where my filmmaking career began. Mm-hmm. And um, always wanting to marry my social advocacy with my art. Um, unfortunately, under these circumstances, though, um, my son had experienced bullying and it really wasn't resolved. And so therefore uh, I wanted to find a way that would not only help him, but help others and educate. So uh, at the time I was acting and for some, it's a natural progression to step from in front of the camera to behind the camera. Mm. And for me, it was, and I wanted to try and help fill the void in terms of anti-bullying education. I had never made a film before, as I mentioned, and uh, I took that journey and began it with my son. He became busy and I saw it through to the end, which took me three years. Mm. But when we went to our first film festival and I heard him speak, I knew that we had, I had done the right thing. We had done the right thing. And that uh, documentary is in 47 cities across North America, 
predominantly libraries and universities, and um, it enabled me to speak internationally on the subject. Well, congratulations once again to you and your son. Thank you. You know, uh, as you were speaking there and talking about the way you have evolved into this, I couldn't help but think about how for so many people, it seems that you hear a lot about these stories, and we're going to be talking about stories today, of course, people's lives and things, but you see how circumstances sometimes put people into a, into a situation not from want, but from need, or from a, a, a way of, of trying to use either something as therapy or a way to help others. It's not necessarily something, just like you were saying, things didn't get resolved, and so you were trying to find a way to help others uh, get through this and, and, and find some kind of way to deal with this as well. So it wasn't necessarily something that you, you necessarily wanted to, but you felt a need to do. Well, I, as I mentioned, I always wanted to marry my art with my social advocacy. Yep. And so this was a, a way because through film documentary, it's very far reaching mm-hmm. and um, can reach the masses. And then, of course, it, it spiraled me into my speaking career as well which helped me reach a lot of people across North America. Right. Oh, so yes. Uh, yes. It was out of the, the want of helping people and, again, trying to fill a much-needed void. Right. Now, with Broken Vows, um, Story of Separation, you've, you've got a quote here that says, you, you know, to have a better understanding and perspective of the roller coaster ride separation can take people on and find solace in the notion that you can walk through the darkness into the light. And of course, we do get a sense of that through this story. Everyone is talking about their own personal experience in this film, including yourself. Correct. And um, it, it is a, a very serious topic, but, uh, but so many people out there, in fact, every one of us, each and every one of us is touched by separation, mm. whether it's directly mm. or indirectly. Yeah. And once again, I felt that the need to fill a void and help educate. Um, so that began my journey of trying to, to fill this void. But yes, it is a very serious topic, but one that needed to be spoken about. Mm-hmm. Now, you specifically are, are focusing on the perspective of women in this film, and understandably so. You know, I, I have to say that I, my own personal life has been affected by this. Uh, my mom and dad separated, and that, that uh, wasn't a happy situation. This was before I was born. But enough about me. Let's, let's get into this, this film of broken vows. And... Um, Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Um, I just wanted to give some perspective because I, I bring that, you know, and, and, you know, we get some information about separation. And of course, you bring in the pandemic as well. And we hear a lot about the stress in people's lives that are being put under through this pandemic. Um, you know, both kids, uh, the mental stress they're going through, as well as this whole pandemic, people being uh, closed up together for, for so long. Um, and, and then and how we hear about the stresses that that has put relationships under. Um, you address that uh, at the end of the film. I do. Um, yeah, and um, the UN Women um, in April on April 6, 2020, they did a, a study on the um, levels of violence mm. um, in terms of uh, against women and children, and the levels and numbers had gone up considerably during the pandemic. Mm. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, so I do briefly speak about that at the end. 
Yeah. I'm not sure how many women are featured in this film. Yes, we have uh, seven women, including myself. And then we also have, as you know, experts mm -hmm. and those who are caught in the crossfire. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, there's some very, very touching moments uh, in this film. The first one that I, I think of is uh, the one about uh, Cole's mother uh, talking about the situation and, and the wonderful gifts that he has uh, that were not being recognized, unfortunately, by by the, the the father in this in this relationship yes. and uh and, and it was that really uh boy that really took took it out you know just to watch that it was very touching uh, then of course the depiction of the strength of the woman whose husband uh purchases a, a handgun i guess and and comes home and starts shooting her in front of his children and yes. and she somehow f finds the strength to go and sit at the table uh, to, and I thought, wow, what a, what a, uh, <laughs> wow. It just, yeah, what else do you say? She finds the strength to go and sit at the table so she doesn't show that weakness and doesn't want to die in front of her children or lie down and die. It's just a, a powerful, powerful comment. And, um, and then the last one is one of the children speaking. And, um, and you know, the thing about your film is that you don't shy away from, um, uh, from moments of, of emptiness, uh, of, of where someone is thinking, and you just let that process take its time, however long that is. And, and that's what we see in one of these children when they're asked, uh, what would you say if you could go back and, and talk to your six or seven or 11-year-old self? And, and, and of course, the, uh, the, the comment that they eventually come out with, of course, is it's, it's not your fault, is the first thing they say. It's very, very powerful. And there's other, of course, very powerful moments as well. You've got this incredibly uh, powerful moment with the father, um, I believe it is, of, of Cole's, his uh, grandfather. His yeah. Yes. Wow, Joe. just some some great great moments uh, that are that are you know really stick with you. But you've got all these other wonderful stories of these women, um, not so wonderful. I shouldn't say that that's the correct word, of course. But uh, you have these women sharing these stories that are so full of information for others, as you say, to realize that that you're not alone, and that there's all you know. Whenever when you when you're watching this film, you really get to see. Um, because no marriage is perfect. Everybody's marriage is going to have ups and downs. And, and, and I'm sure a lot of people question what is the best thing to do? How do we resolve this? We, you know, is it, is it better to, to stick this out? Is it better to try and, you know, even though you, you, you go to therapy, et cetera, and you get to see all of that through the characters in the film. Thank you. Now you've put this to bed. Uh, to, you've got the film out. Uh, in in retrospect, what, what do you what do you feel about it? Well, it was important for me to give my subjects their voice back, mm. but at, in the same breath, uh, not to slant it against men, but to give a woman a safe place mm. to share their story, right. their authentic stories. Mm. And so, you know, there were moments that I did not include because, again, this was their stories, not anything that I wanted to be, to be depicted as a, a, a tilt towards or against men. Mm. And um, it was uh, quite a journey, David, quite a journey, mm. I must say. Mm -hmm. But I, I am, I'm happy with, with um, my finished product yeah. because um, I feel that I was able to get 
the messages across that I really wanted to get across. And although it, you know, my audience, not my audience, but um, is towards women and children, there, you could probably agree with me that there's something in there for everybody of age to learn from. Mm. Oh, absolutely. Um, and, and hats off to the women who joined you in this film. That can't be easy to have come forward to share their stories. I, I call them very brave women. Absolutely. And, and it was a process. Yeah. I mean, um, it took me almost five years to do this documentary. And Colette, Cole's mother, I mean, she was with me close to the beginning of the starting of this project. And then, you know, others that came in at various times. Right. And they, it kind of happened organically in terms of meeting the women mm. and choosing the stories. But um, so I interviewed uh, Colette, you know, three or four times. And then, of course, realizing that she spoke so highly of her father, Tom, Tom, again, I thought, I need to speak to her father, Joe, <laughs> and find out his perspective and, and mm. um, how if he was um, affected by this situation mm. and then it went from there to interviewing another subject's best friend who happened to be in the room when I interviewed her and I wanted to get her perspective because so often when we tell people that we're separating everybody thinks well this is great this is wonderful um, you're going to be happy but there's that gray area that period in time when um, sometimes friends or family don't ask you how you're doing because right. they think you're in this happy place. Hmm. But um, it's a very, very difficult time. Again, as you saw um, watching the documentary. Yeah. And uh, I wanted to show that in this time that we still need you. And uh, again, so often when, and I'm speaking of women in this case, women talk about their, their situations um, and all variations of, of their circumstances. And then friends sometimes will say, well, just get out. Why aren't you getting out of it? And nobody can make a woman get out of a situation until they're ready. Yeah. Right. And, um, and, and that might fall in the category of anybody in terms of being in a difficult situation. You can't get them out of it until they're ready to, to, to leave. Yes, correct. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. I'm your host, David Moses. My guest here on the show is uh, Sonny McFadden Curtis. And uh, we're here talking about a film, Broken Vows, which we'll tell you more about. In fact, let's tell you a little bit more about that now. Um, you can actually uh, find the resource available to purchase at brokenvowsfilm.com. If you want to look that up, you can find out more about that. Uh, Sonny, you just mentioned circumstances. And I thought it was really interesting because one of the things... I, I heard several of the women talk about in the film was finances and, and how they, you know, they were not that informed. Their husbands took care of a lot of the finances. They weren't really involved with that. Uh, some of them were stay-at-home uh, uh, wives and, uh, and left all of that stuff to their husbands. And then, of course, when this all fell apart, they found themselves you know, at the at the mercy of their their husbands because they knew very little about that. They they and there were all the challenges that arose around the finances at the end of their relationship, and and, I, and to some degree, I was surprised by that. In the year of twenty twenty one, or you know, in the last four or five years, as you made this film, some of these women still were not aware of the finances or involved with the finances in their in their families. Well, some weren't involved, or but. In the case of others, they were involved. In, in fact, one of the women is uh, um, into finance, but 
you know, um, to, in today's world, it's a very expensive world out there. Yep. And when you have children and you're, you're perhaps maintaining a home or a mortgage, et cetera, um, it, it can be very difficult until you figure things out and things are finalized because, you know, in the case of these women, they needed help. And yes, there were some women who did not um, handle the finances, but um, you're going to find that, yes, in this century, um, and it, it happens more than we know, but not all of the women did deal with uh, it coming from that perspective. But again, we're coming from the perspective of, you know, they had to receive help from their husband until they got themselves their feet on the ground. Mm -hmm. And rightfully so, being that they were raising their children and they needed that help. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, and I'm not denying that. I'm not saying that they, they shouldn't have been uh, compensated or they shouldn't have been receiving that. Uh, I was just surprised that they, you know, they weren't aware of it during the relationship itself. I, I just thought that was somewhat interesting. Uh, the other thing I found really interesting about it was the one... Uh, the one family that had a very amicable separation and uh, and how they spoke a lot about one of the and that's the, you know the other thing that you you deal with here is is trying to get some information there to show what some of the better ways if you do have to go this route uh, might be the best way to go and that collaborative legal process seemed to have been working very well um, for the one family that chose that yes I agree. Um, collaborative is, is a very good choice in terms of separation. Um, and that's if both parties are in agreement of that because you don't go to court mm -hmm. uh, as opposed to um, taking the litigation route. But Bill Eddy also devised a program out of yes. San Diego yes. through his knowledge of being a mediator, a lawyer, and um, a therapist. Yep. And through his experience, he devised this program called New Ways for Families, which is also very interesting and very helpful to those who would prefer or choose the not going to court mm -hmm. or the route of not going to court. Because as you saw um, in some situations, it's very damaging to the children. Yeah. Very damaging to the children. But yes, um, I would agree that collaborative is a, a good route in terms of, in choice, in terms of um, separating. And of course, Bill Eddy's um, program that he devised new ways for families mm -hmm. yeah absolutely um it, the other thing of course that you get a sense of is wow the the court system and uh and just how damaging that whole process is for people yes um luckily enough i happened to interview the most amazing judge and and uh i really respect him but um i'm going to be perfectly honest not all judges um, handle their their um, cases the same way. And again, mm -hmm. as you saw in the documentary, um, at least one of the women was sequestered in the court system for over 13 years. Yeah, yeah. How does one go on with their life right. when they're being dragged in and out of court year upon year? Yeah. And of course, you know, the costs and the effects, as I bring it back to the effects on the children. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because when you say that, it, it brings back a couple of things I wrote down, uh, you know, being brought back into the court system by their spouse uh, to, to battle out things. And it, and it just comes back to the idea that you see in these relationships to some degree, uh, and that is power and control. That's what I wrote down, power and control. Mm -hmm. Yes. And um, 
again in in some of these circumstances and and often uh when again i'm speaking of women when women are being taken in and out of court um a lot of times uh it is a power control situation and the judge that i spoke to and interviewed for the doc uh he clearly in my conversation um understands and recognizes that early on in his his time of meeting a uh couple in his courtroom but um certainly more often than not i'm going to say when people are being dragged in a court for years i would have to say that a lot of it stems from wanting to have control and power mm-hmm. and um it's very unfortunate and that's kind of where my journey started because i couldn't understand when meeting an influx of women who were being um i i used the term dragged in at a court year upon year and how this was allowed to happen to them yeah who was letting this happen to them and how were they getting away with this yeah uh, there's a couple of things come to mind. One, w- yeah, the court system, power control, but also I think of these women's, uh, to, again, uh, in some of these relationships, the the male counterpart, their husbands, who are using that same, uh, those same, you know, uh, techniques of power control uh, m- to manipulate the situation as much as they can. Well, I'd like to see something in place in courts, and it was it's been recently brought to my attention where um, if this happens or continues to happen, that uh, there be uh, something in place uh, whereby if the spouse chooses to continue to do this, that they are the ones who pay for it. Mm. And, um, and, and now, granted, there are situations, isolated situations where, you know, there are real concerns so I'm not mixing the two together. Right. But in the, in the circumstances where it's quite obvious that this is happening, um, I would le- I'm going to do some research about this and perhaps talk to somebody higher up about having something put in place. Mm. Because as you know, um, I've been involved on the political side of things when it came to bullying, and mm-hmm. it, I don't shy away from things like that. Right. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the other thing, of course, that your film brings to light, just in a general sense, is just relationships in general and the the messiness of our imperfect lives, you know, both males, women and men, and marriages and, 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 you know, just how difficult it is uh, to... to try to, uh, you know, manage ourselves through decades of being together, raising children and wanting to do that, that uh, the best thing for our kids and for our future and, and all of those kind of things. Um, and, and so, you know, the other thing that comes to mind as I, as I say that is when I hear these women uh, saying, this is the, the man I was going to marry, I was going to, you know, live with them for the rest of our lives. And, and, and and the 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 thing I told you about my own life experience, and then through my own uh, older sisters, uh, two uh, two failed marriages, uh, one husband who was the best guy that could ever have come into our family ends up being killed in a car accident, and and it just tore us apart to oh to see this man. Uh, you know, he was such a great dad and he was such a great guy and, and then to have that happen. And so my own experience, you know, again, I'm speaking from my own experience. And that is that I, I feel like 
we never know what is around the corner. We never know. We we would like maybe something to to go a certain direction, but but we don't know. We just we, we don't know what's going to happen. We really don't know. And um, I've started to um, just uh, taking my work out of it. I started to live in the moment mm. because you don't know. And in the work I do, you see that. Um, more and more and so often Mm -hmm. in terms of being a filmmaker and and speaking to many people about their lives and experiences. And I, I live in the moment. I'm happy right now because you never know what's around the corner. Yeah. Very true. Um, Sonny, our time is almost up, and I have a question. You know, the other thing that comes to mind, and going going back, it goes back to uh, to theater, I guess, or or to uh, quotes, um, and that is, and I'm, you know, the quote I'm probably going to say, and um, well, one thing I wrote down is, is it more destructive to stay together or to leave? That's the other thing that came to mind when I was watching this. Well, um, all I'm going to say about that is, each situation. Each marriage mm. is an isolated individual yeah. situation and circumstances. Yeah. So I couldn't possibly answer that right. and paint everything with a with one brush. Mm-hmm. And and that's how I, I look at them as um, individual uh, marriages and relationships and situations. Yeah. Yeah. So the, what I was the quote I was going to say doesn't really apply because it's not necessarily about marriage, although it is, of course, the one about is it better to have loved and lost than never to have loved at all. But loving and marriage, uh, you could say, are two different things, I guess. <laughs> well, actually, I love that quote. Mm. Thank you. Mm. I do. I love that quote. Any further comments on it? <laughs> um, well, I think that. Personally, it's wonderful to have loved mm. mm-hmm. and and have that in your heart. Right. I personally think that. Yeah, absolutely. Sonny, it's been a real pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much for this film. Is there anything else you can tell us about the film or where people can find it or where it's going to be shown? You've gotten some amazing awards for this. Oh, my goodness. It goes on and on forever. I appreciate that. So um, I finished this documentary not too long ago, and my intention all along was to um, do this companion resource to go along with it, mm. which answers the non, uh, 350 non-questions that one might have. And so now that I've completed that, and that was, you know, literally within like the last three weeks, mm-hmm. um, I am now, um, and I have been in talks with distribution for both Great. projects. So the, the six volume resource and the documentary, Bow in the Culture of Silence, and uh, sorry, ah, uh, um, Broken Vows, Stories of Separation, and Broken Vows, Stories of Separation, the resource. Now that I've completed that, I'm on my way to um, distribution. Congratulations. That's wonderful. I appreciate that. Thank you so much. You know, again, we, we talked about the seriousness of this film uh, and and uh, this documentary, uh, Broken Vows, but it, it also is a, a, a great resource for as you say, for anyone, there is something in there for everyone and anyone, even if it's not something that you are personally looking at, you probably know someone either in your family or a close friend or, or, or extended family that is being affected by this. And it gives people a, a much uh, a better idea of what is going on in people's lives uh, as, they, as they go through this. Absolutely. 
absolutely there's something in there, as I mentioned, for everybody to take away from. Mm-hmm. Sunny Fadden Curtis, a pleasure speaking with you about Broken Vows. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us on the show and talk about it. Thank you, David. All it's right. been a pleasure. And that is the voice of Sunny McFadden Curtis. She's the director of Broken Vows, Stories of Separation. And she is an award-winning director. She's also been involved with another film on bullying, Bullying, A Culture of Silence. And you can find out more by going to brokenvowsfilm.com and uh, finding out more about how you can go about seeing it or purchasing the film. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. We're going to be right back with more right here on Moment of Truth right after this. Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa. And of course, you can listen on the iHeartRadio app as well. Download the app and take us with you anywhere you go and listen to us anywhere you go. My guest here on this part of the show is Bonnie Stewart. She's an educator and social media researcher interested in the implications of digital networks for institutions, society, and for learning. She's an assistant professor of online pedagogy and workplace learning in the University of Windsor's Faculty of Education, and she has an extensive background in digital and experimental education and in adult learning approaches. She's a visiting fellow at the Open University of Catalina, Spain, and at the University of the Arts in London, and she was an early, now I'm not sure, Bonnie, what this stands for, M-O-O-C, I'm not sure what that stands for. It's Massive Open Online Course, David. If you've ever seen those courses that uh, Stanford or MIT Mm. or Harvard offer, where you and I can do those courses for free without paying their kind of tuition, they put them out on the web. Mm. Those were initially piloted in Canada. Now, we're talking to Bonnie today about an article she authored in the conversation. It is entitled, Hybrid Learning, Teaching Kids in Person and Online at the Same Time Robs Children of Quality Education. So, Bonnie, it is a pleasure to have you here on the show. I'm so happy to be here, David. Thank you. You bet. Now, your article, certainly uh, at a time when we're getting back to school, uh, we've been through COVID now for, you know, a couple of years almost, and we've had to deal with uh, that kerfuffle and just going through this whole thing of trying to understand how we were going to deal with COVID, educate ourselves, get on with life. And, um, and we, of course, we found ourselves with schools going to the online high, uh, hybrid learning situation where classes were open, then schools were closed, and and kids were online, and then they were going back to school, and it was back and forth there for quite a while. Now, of course, uh, we see that that's going to continue into the fall because they're going to offer this hybrid learning uh, opportunity for for kids. Now, this article kind of focuses on the on the younger student of, of education, uh, I guess kindergarten to grade 12 is what you're talking about. Yeah, and I think it's important, David, that we probably have a couple of definitions here even to start because sure. I worked in online learning for about 20 years and hybrid learning can mean a whole bunch of things, including like you're saying, sort of a, a mix of online and face-to-face approaches that can be great. There are lots and lots of ways to do that well in an education setting. What's happening in Ontario is not that. What's happening in Ontario is, like you say, we are, what, two and a half, three weeks out from Mm -hmm. the first day of school. A lot of us 
who are parents are realizing, you know, crap, this is uh, going to be the third academic year where our kids, all of whom are at you know, critical educational development stages, are having going to have a year that looks likely to be impacted by COVID. Now, that's nobody's fault. Right. But the hybrid learning model that's been pitched in Ontario is a very specific thing. It is not just, hey, we have face-to-face classes, and if we have to, we pivot online. Again, that, that's been the response through the pandemic and frankly, as a safety move, that makes sense, right? When it comes to the point where here in Windsor last December, our health unit actually put us all online a week before the rest of Ontario because our cases, as they are again now, tend to be higher than those in the rest of the province at mm-hmm. certain times. Um, hybrid learning in the Ontario context under Ford and Stephen Lecce is the idea that a teacher is given a regular face-to-face class of students and then said, hey, also, why don't you broadcast this class to the kids at home? Hmm. So rather than funding specific virtual schools, um, it's mandated in Ontario right now that all schools offer some kind of virtual option to families right? Mm-hmm. Oh, it's a choice, etc. Although everyone's having to make this choice before we have any sense of what the COVID situation is. So, it's not really about safety. It is a choice that the government has decided not to put any money behind this year. Mm. In fact, we're looking at a situation where they've projected over the next eight years, there will be something like a 12 billion shortfall in mm-hmm. education. So a whole lot of boards have gone, ah, we can't pay separate stream of principals, separate stream of, of teachers in a virtual school. We're going to have to ask teachers to do what's called hybrid learning, which is that two jobs at the same time, basically teaching two classes at once. You've got kids in front of you and you've got kids tuning in from home via a device. Mm. The reason that's a problem is, and again, I've worked online for a long time, there are actually, you know, online pedagogy means just how you teach, your approach to teaching, the strategies that you use. Online pedagogy is designed to be born digital um, so that you're using the tools that the internet makes available to allow people to connect, to make, you know, genuine kind of contact with each other, to engage in ways that... Um, are at least moderately engaging, but nobody had time to train everybody to that when we pivoted online. So, a lot of people's experience in K-12 and higher ed over the last 18 months has been just fair, particularly at the K-12 level because it was mandated that everybody go six hours synchronous, real time at the same time. That's not how online pedagogy works. Right. You've got all these kids, right? My own kids were online for a lot of last year. Um, they're sitting there. Of course, sometimes the next tab over where the teacher isn't on their laptop is, you know, Netflix or mm-hmm. Fortnite or whatever, because kids are human and no one is meant to sit there for six hours right. doing right. synchronous learning. Um, now, families who decide for their kids to go back to school because maybe they weren't super happy with the experience of online learning last year through no fault of the teachers, everyone was trying their very, very best, but 
those families are still going to have their kids in classes that are basically dominated by online learning approaches. Because if a teacher is going to engage any of the kids online, they can't use the face-to-face methods of talk to your seatmate because those kids have no seatmate. Right. You know, as you were talking there and thinking about going over this process and, and, and you know, this, this hybrid learning, um, which, which was born out of this emergent, emergency to have some kind of remote teaching through the crisis of COVID, right? Yep. And as you say, there, I, I can't actually, when you think about it, uh, if you think about a teacher trying to engage uh, some kids online at the same time that they're teaching in class that is splitting your focus to begin with yeah it's it's uh it, it wouldn't be conducive to uh to a a better way or or trying to to uh, have them really absorb a lot of information no i mean it's it's not optimal as a learning situation for kids and the thing is is that it didn't really have to be this way the idea of hybrid learning in this definition, right? Teaching two classes at once comes out of a higher ed model called high flex learning. Right. Mm-hmm. And it was developed in Canada 15 um, ish years ago. A couple of different places in Canada and the US ended up doing some work on it, but it was always directed at graduate students. Right. So you've got mature students who have job responsibilities, who have childcare responsibilities. And the key part of high flex as a model was the flex part. Let's just say that I can't get a babysitter for my evening class. And so that week I may need to tune in online, but I'm an invested mature student, right? right, Who is not taking a mandatory second grade course. Um, I'm going to have a different relationship to my learning. And my faculty member, my teacher is more likely to be, doing something that may be lecture-based, right, which broadcasts well. Mm -hmm. And if it's not lecture-based, the classes in graduate school tend to be reasonably small. And if you're engaging people in learning together, then you can use, from even from the classroom, methods like, hey, let's go onto this platform and have a discussion. Mm -hmm. When you've got little kids who aren't even you know, literate and typing kind of thing, they can't go in and have an online discussion with each other Mm -hmm. um, using text back and forth, doing kind of the many-to-many communications that the internet makes possible. If they all start talking at once, it's a gong show. Um, So, it's really, really tough to translate that model to a face, um, to a K-to-K, that. It's really tough to translate that model to a K-12 setting, particularly for younger students, just because a lot of what the internet makes possible works best if you are literate and able to type or text, right? Because Mm. again, if Mm -hmm. everybody's talking at once, that's challenging to navigate. But the thing is, it didn't have to be this way, right? Particularly at the K-12 level, if school boards in this province were funded well mm-hmm. to do to enact the virtual mandate so that there were the priorities would have to be policy training and funding um, to make this happen well to have the province respond to covid in a way that was forward thinking great instead saying all right teachers you do the same job, except do it twice at once, plan for two classes. You're taking a group that have already been through a huge change in the last 18 months who are exhausted, who are Mm -hmm. burning out. And you're basically signing the like, yeah, go ahead and burn out. 
But you're also signing off on making sure that kids can't have a fully focused teacher who's able to focus on them when they're there in front of them. Mm. You think about people who do this kind of two audience thing well, right? I don't know if you watch like Jimmy Fallon. Jimmy Fallon, who does late night TV, or Graham Norton, who does late night TV, they're great with the people who are sitting in that chair in front of them, right? They're charming, they're funny, they're engaging, and they are also charming, funny, and engaging to the millions at home who are watching. That is hard to do. Mm. Even most late night folks can't do it well. And they have one single human being in front of them to connect to at the same time. Mm -hmm. And they're just there to entertain. Imagine if you have 20 delightful human beings in front of you to interview at once and you're Jimmy Fallon and you want to make them all feel attended Mm -hmm. to and connected. And your job isn't just to entertain everybody out there. It's to make sure that they can also, you know, pass grade six math you've got a really tough job in front of you. Mm. Yeah, you sure do when you put it like that. That's a great description. Yeah, that's what we're asking of teachers right, right now. Right? Yeah. When, we, when we take the, the hybrid model, that's basically the situation that we're putting students and teachers in. So I want to come back to what you just said, the hybrid learning model, but also go back to what we were forced into because of COVID, and that is have, developing this emergency remote teaching system uh, in, in lieu of being able to go to class. Do you think that at this point in time, we as a society, and I'm including education and government and everybody else in that as well, still thinks we're, there's a bit of that emergency remote teaching crisis still behind what we're doing. Whereas you're saying, I think that, you know, this is moving on now beyond, we should have gotten further uh, beyond this, uh, this way of dealing with this. Now we've had a year or more to deal with it. We should have developed more and, and found a, a better way. I think we could have legislated differently for sure. I mean, for teachers, they've been deep in it since the 13th of March, 2020, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, look, March break is extended by a week. Ooh, <laughs> remember that time when mm-hmm. we were like, really, we'll have a whole extra week. Um, then basically they had to jump off the deep end, try to figure out for the most part, how to do things that they hadn't done before, mm-hmm. caught their breath last summer, have not had sustained provincial investment in the policy training kind of funding pieces that I was talking about Mm. to give clarity about this is where we're going. These are our long-term goals. In this province, there has been a push, right, even before the pandemic to institute online learning um, as mandatory credits in high school. But that was never about um, building capacity among teachers, right? That was often perceived particularly by the teachers unions, I think, as an encroachment on their Mm. territory, a disinvestment in teaching. So we've always had kind of a bad faith situation from the time that we went into emergency remote teaching. Teachers have, for the most part, any teacher that my kid has had or encountered in the past 18 months, and there's been a few um, because my kids moved from face-to-face to to a virtual school, Mm. uh, has been working super hard to do the very, very best they can, but without a sense of clarity about where we're going, this is how we're going to invest in you, this is how you can make the most of these opportunities and learn how to do the things that you need to do, you know, that that's challenging. 
Okay. Uh, you're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa. This is Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. My guest is Bonnie Stewart. She's an educator and social media researcher interested in the implications of digital networks for institutions, for society and learning. She is an assistant professor in online pedagogy and workplace learning at the University of Windsor. And we're talking to her about her article. She authored in the conversation, Hybrid Learning, Teaching Kids in Person and online at the same time robs children of quality education now you mentioned your kids um, uh, Bonnie went from uh, an in-class to a virtual school you you've mentioned this virtual school idea do you see that as uh, well what is a virtual school I guess that's what I'm saying is that different than saying okay uh, your regular school teacher is going to move over to just teach online are we talking about two different things here altogether to an extent, yes. So last year, virtual schools were pretty normative around Ontario, although they did not, every board had the opportunity to make their own decisions based on their own funding, essentially, and their own coffers um, about how they were going to offer the online option for parents at the start of the school year. Both summers, summer 2020 and summer 2021, some of that clarity was a little late in coming and um certainly i i I think there's been pushback significant pushback in ontario from parents each summer about look could we have had these decisions earlier on Mm. um is there more opportunity for flexibility within this model but the virtual school model was board many boards chose to both run face-to-face classes which mostly had to go online from December to February and from April to June. Um, And also whole separate schools, essentially, where if you signed up for that school, then your kid was no longer at XYZ elementary school. They were a member of your region's virtual school. They had a separate principal and a separate class of teachers and were online through the whole thing. In many boards, students had at least two or three decision points where they could go back and forth throughout the year. Mm. But for the most part, by about last January, you had to have made the decision about which way you were going. Um, So if you remember, that was like the peak of the second wave and there was no clear information for parents at that decision point about whether the face-to-face schools would be going back face-to-face at any point. So many parents chose to go to the virtual model at that point because they weren't comfortable sending their kids back face-to-face in the middle of the second wave. Um, But like I said, funding those completely separate schools because it involves, um, you know, paying entirely separate infrastructures is expensive for boards. And so many this year have decided to take their existing teachers and just give them double the labor for the single salary. Mm. Now, the other thing about going to this hybrid or this online model for virtual schools, would you say that there is and have we now had enough time to transition? Because I'm guessing most of the teachers out there uh, were raised and were educated in a system that was, you know, in, in for in-class presentation and instruction, not 
necessarily online. Do you think that that the teachers have the skills in order to translate and transfer over to that virtual uh, presentation side at this point in time? I think many are actively in the process of building those skills. Mm. Um, Some are getting better at it than others. Some definitely would prefer to be fully face to face. Um, But I've seen a lot of teachers make sort of leaps and bounds in terms of approaching that. The thing about it is those are not just entertainment skills, right? Mm -hmm. They are actually strategies for how you get kids at all ages, but particularly in the younger elementary ages, connecting with each other. School is not just the content that we're teaching. It's the experience that we have. It's Mm -hmm. the sense of belonging that we give. It is the, um, it's the ways in which we encourage kids to build skills, working together and communicating with each other, learning from each other, as well as just from a single textbook. If people could learn optimally just by sitting and reading things we wouldn't need schools anymore we could all learn from wikipedia but we are not actually a society of sort of uh what dr tracy mcmillan cotton called years ago roving autodidacts right Mm. if that worked for every learner at every age dandy it doesn't right and so Building the capacity to engage people in the act of learning is a key thing that teachers do. Some are working super hard to learn to do it online well, but the infrastructure that our, again, our provincial government has mandated is starting September 2020, everybody who was teaching online had to teach six, kind of that full day of online content. Mm -hmm. And that full day of online content is actually against all of the best practices that exist in online learning theory and um, pedagogy over the last 20 years. The idea that you just are talking at people and that's what learning is, is a mistaken understanding of education, right? right? No one has the attention span for that, especially in an attention economy. And we live in an attention economy. And anytime Mm. that you're putting kids online, you're asking them to choose, you know, your grade eight teacher discussing, I don't know what they do, geometry perhaps, um, over Fortnite in the next tab over. Yeah. That's tough for kids. Parents are not able to sit and look over their kid's shoulder and ensure that they are compliant and attending. And that whole model was never really going to work. The mandate that people be full-time synchronous kind of set the whole online experiment up to fail. Right now, you know, we are talking a lot about, oh, the learning loss. I keep hearing this discussion about learning loss. That actually isn't my main concern. I think that that is um, a push to reassert the idea that school is about content. Not that content isn't important, but the real dangerous thing for education, from my perspective, in this pandemic is disengagement, right? Mm -hmm. Some kids are out there, they are literally fully off their school roles. They've kind of disappeared. That's frightening for those kids, 100%. For um, what opportunities are available to them after this, for are they safe? Are they okay? But even the kids who are there putting in their time, are they actually, what messages are they getting about learning? What, what relationship to learning are they building 
and particularly for kids who have poor internet, who have learning disabilities, who have all different kinds of challenges, if they don't feel included and connected to their learning experience, that's going to have impacts on them, even if they're putting in the time. Right. As you were talking there, I, I know we've heard a lot about the, 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 the mental health of the youth and the stresses and all of those kind of things that they've been dealing with throughout this pandemic as well. And uh, as you mentioned, the learning loss and the disengagement. Yeah, that's, that's a really good way of saying it. But I guess in a way, that disengagement is a learning loss to some degree, wouldn't it be? <laughs> I think it's a loss for learning, but the term learning loss is being used to represent the idea that a specific child, right, is behind. And the thing about that is, A, learning isn't a bucket that you fill. Um, Kids are not just sort of empty heads that we are filling with knowledge. B, the vast majority of kids are experiencing the same thing. So, you know, for, for those of us who have been educated and learned mostly in this culture within sort of the North American model, it can be very surprising to learn that in different places, kids learn different things at different times. Mm. Um, kids are taught sometimes entirely different sets of content. It isn't just necessarily reading, writing, arithmetic the way that we know it or we learned it. Um, And so learning loss, if everybody is just learning some different things, eventually that's not going to have a huge impact. It is mostly, you know, those of us whose kids maybe we're going to do fine to begin with who are driving Mm -hmm. that conversation Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. oh but what about little Susie not getting to the 99th percentile instead of the 98th percentile that isn't the piece that worries me the most learning is not a counting noun you can't have six learnings Um, learning is actually an experience Mm -hmm. and it is something that is a lifelong thing Mm -hmm. kids who are suddenly deciding that school and everything else is just absolutely dead boring mm. that is much more of a cultural problem and the the inequality that that is going to um make worse is something that concerns me far more mm. Well, just to finish up, uh, I wrote down as you were talking there and thinking about this this whole situation we find ourselves in the effectiveness of all of this because because of the effect on the, the kids, the effect on the teachers, um, the the effect on what you were just talking about, the, the ability for kids to be disengaged and, and what are the long-term, uh, you know, uh, effects of that on our society uh, What we when we come out of this. Um, it, it doesn't sound like any of this is very, very positive in many ways for us. I mean, there's a really tough decision for everyone who's a decision maker right now. And I do not envy one, envy anybody who is a decision maker in the mm. COVID context, because mm. this is a constant moving target and we are having to deal with so much uncertainty. But when we have situations where, you know, um, we have governments who are saying, we are going back to school and kids are going to do this and this and this and this, um, And people are like, okay, but is this actually safe, Mm. right? I feel like we need governance in this moment that gives us as much 
clarity and also contingency planning information as it can. And that's one of the things that we're not getting is if this happens, then we will do X. Mm. That allows families to actually have choice, to actually make informed decisions. Just choosing if your kid is online or face-to-face isn't really a choice when you don't know if the kid face-to-face will be safe or if the kid online will be getting a much lesser learning experience than a kid who is in a face-to-face class. So, I think that one of the big lessons for all of us coming out of this COVID pandemic We live in a time of extreme uncertainty, not just with COVID, with climate, with all kinds of things happening. And we are raising a generation of kids who are going to need skills for dealing with uncertainty. Complexity and uncertainty are something that we could be doing a really great job of kind of teaching through this moment if we weren't so set on kind of pretending that we could return to normal and control everything. Mm. But that is not so much um, the path that we're getting. Right. Bonnie, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much for taking the time to uh, join us on the show. Talk to us about your article, Hybrid Learning, Teaching Kids in Person and Online. At the same time, Rob's Children of Quality Education, which you authored in the conversation. And uh, it sounds like there may be another uh, conversation for us to have at a later date. Once school starts back and we we get into the thick of it in the next couple of months, uh, it might be worth uh, while uh, talking with you again to see how things are going forward and what your thoughts are. That'd be great. We definitely live in interesting times, David. We certainly do, Bonnie. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us on the show. Have a great day. You too. Take care. That is Bonnie Stewart. She's an educator and social media researcher interested in the implications of digital networks for institutions, for society, and for learning. She's an assistant professor of online pedagogy and workplace learning at the University of Windsor. This has been Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM.